Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Um, over the last couple of weeks, you know, we've been talking about the subject of the gospel and felt like God was leading us in this particular direction. So four weeks ago, what we did is we talked about the mission statement of our church and the purpose and why we come together and what we're driving towards. And we talked about the fact that we've, we've come together and, and our goal is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. That's our desire. That's our purpose statement for celebration. Very simple. And so what we did is we talked about the fact that if we were going to make disciples of all nations, as God has called us to, that we are going to have to get the gospel out. We're going to have to share the gospel with others. And uh, we had even talked a little bit about how our church plans on doing that. We don't do a whole lot of event evangelism, but instead what we try to do is we try to equip each of you uh, to fulfill the Great Commission, to be obedient to God's commission, to open up your mouths and open up our mouths and share the gospel with those who are around us. So the second week, Brother Jimmy came and gave a very helpful and very practical teaching on how do we initially engage people with the gospel message, and he did a wonderful job with that. And last week, we talked a little bit about what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. And my desire there was really to be able to share with you the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, in the narrow sense. And what I mean by that is I want to break it down, the gospel, to its lowest common denominator, and or denominators, and in that in being by providing for you four essential elements of the gospel, and we talked about uh, God's sovereignty. We talked about man's problem. We talked about Jesus' solution, and then finally we talked about our response. Those four essential elements that must be in the gospel when we're sharing it with other people. You say, may say a lot more, but you can say nothing less. Than those four truths. And so what I did was just give you the skeleton last week. Saying these are the things we need to know. And so what I want to do today is I kind of want to fill out that skeleton with, with muscle and with flesh. And, and what I want to do is I want to give you a broader understanding of the gospel. And what God intended to do and what he's doing now. And what he will do kind of in the future. And I want to use um, the same outline that we used last week. The same four uh, major points this week. But you'll see as we we begin to develop them by looking at the first four chapters in the book of Genesis. Y'all with me? Uh, on there, I think you'll understand a little bit more as we go on. So let's, let's begin this morning, first of all, with God's sovereignty. With God's sovereignty. In Genesis 1-1, the Bible begins, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This tells us immediately that everything we see around us, and, and even ourselves, we are not here by some kind of accident. But rather, we are here by divine appointment, because of divine purpose, and by divine design. And so, as we begin to read through chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, we find that God begins to create in six days. And in the first five days, after he creates whatever it is he creates that day, he looks at it and he says, uh, and it was good. At the last day in which he forms and creates the world on the sixth day, he creates humankind, the pinnacle or the crown of his creation. And when he finishes creating mankind, at the end of the day, he looks at it and says, it is very good. It is very good. There was something unique about man that took good and, and moved it into the very good category. Now, why was that? Well, I think the Bible gives us a hint of that in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. There the Bible says, so God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created man. Now, what does it mean to be created in the image or likeness of God? What it means is this. It means that even though we are not like God in many, many ways, there are some ways in which we are like him. Uh, He made us like him in many ways. Let me give you just two of those ways. First of all, he made us like him relationally. Relationally. God reserved a very unique relationship with humankind that he didn't share with the rest of creation. He communed with man and woman. He, He communicated with them unlike any of the other creation that he had formed. In fact, we get a picture of this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. There it says that God came in the cool of the day and he began to walk and he began to talk with Adam and Eve. He doesn't do that with any of the rest of his creation. We're unique. We were created in the image of God for relationship with our creator. But the Bible also says we're unique not only in our, in our, in our relation but also in our occupation. He's given us a very specific responsibility. And we see it in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. There the Bible says, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He calls man to have dominion over all living things. He, he, he created him above those things. God wanted him to be a steward over the rest of his creation. Now, he's, he wasn't able to do whatever he wanted with God's creation. He had to be submissive to God's will and, and, and fulfill his purposes for the rest of his creation. He, was, he, he, was, he subdued, he, he, he ruled over the rest of creation because he was created above it, but he was in submission to God because he was created below God. So he was subservient to him. And so what was this purpose? What was this occupation or job that God was giving him to do? Well, the Bible kind of clarifies that. And, and, and let me give you in the words of, of, of two theologians by the name of Bartholomew and Cohen. This is the way they say it. They said, God created man to take the raw materials that he's provided in this world, filled the whole world up with all these wondrous raw materials, and he made man and gave him the responsibility to develop the hidden potential of those raw materials for the glory of God. So his responsibility was to take the raw materials that God had created in this world and he was to work them in a way and develop them in a way that would demonstrate and bring out their hidden potential to glorify God. Let me, let me say it this way. It's kind of like God came to Adam and said, hey, listen, see that magnificent chunk of beautiful, intricate marble over there? He goes, I made that. Now, what I want you to do is with your intellect and your ability and your skills, I want you to go and hone that rock and sculpt that rock in such a way that the finished product would demonstrate how glorious I am. And it would be like him coming to you and I and saying, hey, listen, see all the colors that I've made? See all the brilliant colors you see, the vibrant colors and the intricacies of those colors that I've made all over the world. I want you to take this paint and I want to take those colors and I want you to take that canvas and I want you to paint a picture in a way that demonstrates my immense, mind-blowing beauty. And then he might take them as well and say, Hey, I've created this thing called music with notes and pitch and 
these minor notes and major notes, and I want you to get them, and I want you to, to take what I've created, and I want you to compose them in such a way that you will create a great symphony and a magnificent work of music so that when it's played, people realize just how eternally magnificent I am. And to become even more practical, he might even say this, hey, this is a woman that I'm giving you, Adam. Here's a woman that I'm giving you now that I'm entrusting you with her. This is what I want you to do. I want you to love her in such a way that the whole world will clearly understand my eternal, unbreakable love for you. Do you see how that works? So you and I were to take the life that God has given us, the skill he has given us, and take the raw materials of this world and work them in such a way that God has demonstrated his value and his worth and his glory. Are you, tr- are you tracking with me? Do you guys get that? That was the purpose that God gave them. But did you notice also he told them that they were to be fruitful and multiply? Did you, did you, did you notice that? Now, where does that fit in? Well, he wanted them to bear children, and these children would be a blessing to them. But here's the idea. Don't just put one small community. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to spread people out on every bit of land throughout the world. Why? So that every man, woman, and child around the entire world will uniquely use their gifts to unpack the hidden uh, potential of the created things on earth, and they will use that to worship God so that God is being glorified in literally billions upon billions of unique ways all the way through the world so that the whole world is declaring his glory, so the whole world is shouting his value, so the whole world is declaring there is none other but God and God alone, and he is deserving of all glory. Are, are y'all, does that stir you at all? Some of you need to wake up or get saved. I'm looking at some, and there's just, okay, is, can you give me something for my finances? Forget the finances. We're talking about God and his purpose of creating us. And here, so here's a beautiful thing. God creates all this, and so what we see in chapter one and chapter two is we see a clear picture of what paradise is. Paradise is this benevolent God creator who gives us life and gives us every imaginable blessing and he asks us to come and be in a relationship with him and he bestows blessing upon blessing with us and we become subservient to him and submissive to him and we say, God, it's your way. We'll do what you call us to do so we get to enjoy him and then he hardwired man's heart, Adam and Eve's heart so that his working and bringing about for the glory of God is what made him have the greatest sense of peace and satisfaction he could ever imagine. Do you see how that works? That was paradise. But what we find in the word of God is we know that paradise was clearly lost. It didn't take, very, it didn't take Dorothy very long to realize that she wasn't in Kansas anymore, right? Well, for you and I, it doesn't take very long for you to look around this world and see that we're not in paradise anymore. Instead, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world with, with, with sin, pain, war, hunger, disease, suffering, wrongdoing. What happened? Where did it all go wrong? How was paradise lost? And that brings us to the second point, man's problem. See, God had given Adam and Eve the power to choose. 
And he did this by placing a tree in the midst of the garden. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told Adam, he said, listen, you may have eaten of any of the trees in the garden, any one of them, except for the one, the tree, of the, uh, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, he said. So there was their opportunity, their freedom to choose. They could either choose to do what God had created them for, or they could choose not to do that. And their choice clearly became evidence because one day as Eve was in the garden, the serpent comes to her and he says, hey, listen, he says, I'm, he says wouldn't you like to be as God? And what we find there is we find the ultimate uh, underlying of all temptation. He was tempting her with the sin of autonomy. Let me explain that. The sin of autonomy is simply this. It's you personally determining that you will be the rightful determiner of what is right and wrong for you. Instead of entrusting God to determine what is right and wrong for you and for me. Do you see how that works? So he comes and he says, if you eat of the fruit, you will become like God. So this temptation proved to be too difficult for her, too great for her. She falls, her husband falls very soon, very quickly after her. And so what they do is they now are guilty of playing God. No longer the creation, but they want to be the creator. Now, if, 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 if things obviously got much worse than that, what we find is because of that, everything changes now. Everything changed. The whole world was now stained and contaminated with this sin. Now, remember, they were walking in the... Remember, everything seemed to be going great, but now for the very first time, they experience shame and they experience guilt. And now they have this kind of inclination within them to try to cover up their sin because of their shame, to try to hide themselves. And the Bible says that things now change between the husband and wife. Now their relationship is no longer based on mutual trust and affection, but now is based on skepticism. And if that wasn't bad enough, what's really bad is the way that their relationship with God was ultimately affected. God said, on the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. They didn't die fully and completely that day physically. That was prolonged, but they did die spiritually. Their relationship and their capacity to walk and to talk and to fellowship with the creator God was now forever lost. And God took them and he banned them away out of his presence, out of the garden. And what we find is we read the scriptures, we find out that, that now... Everything is underneath the curse of sin. And now what we find is that even though Adam and Eve will still maintain and have the image of and be created in the image of God, that image now is severely marred. And the rest of creation, it still maintains some of the glimpses of its original beauty. But now even all of creation has fallen and now it is severely marred. That's what we mean when we talk about the fall. It's not just that they fell into sin. All of creation fell with them. And so what we find is if Adam and Eve thought for a moment that this, it couldn't get any worse, they were clearly wrong because they did what God had called them to do. They had the blessing and they had children. And there was Adam, or excuse me, and there was Cain and their Abel, their two boys, and they grew up and they came to give an offering to God of worship and, 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 and God accepted Abel's sacrifice. This is all in Genesis chapter four. And then, and then but he rejected Cain's because of the wickedness of his heart. And Cain became unhar- uh, hard-hearted. 
and he fell to the temptation of the devil once again. And, 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 and on one day, just out in, in, in the woods, in the wild, he kills his brother. He murders his brother. And at that point, Adam and Eve realized something. They realized that their sin, sin was not an isolated event. That their sin and their fallenness had now passed on to their children. That they now, just as they became sinners, now their kids wouldn't become sinners. They would be born sinners. That same fallenness that they experienced of shame and guilt and wickedness, now their children had inherited it. And the Bible teaches that specifically it comes from the father. It's passed down from the father. That makes sense, doesn't it, women? That the sin is passed down for the father. The father says, honey, I think she's got your eyes. And the wife says, I think... She's got your sin. It passed down from you, right? And so now every man, woman, everybody who was born, every child that would be born, that would extend and, and come from the line of Adam, which is who? Everyone would now be born with a sin nature. So, so understand what happens here. Now that we're born with a sin nature, our, 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 we're, we're rewired in a different way. No longer are we programmed or, 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 or hardwired to desire to walk with God and to be able to do with what he's entrusted us with, it, with his glory. Now we're hardwired for sin. Now we're hardwired to, instead of running to him, we want to run away from him. We are all hardwired to become autonomous. We wake up saying, it's not God's way, it's my way. And I want to use my gifts, and I want to use my abilities, and I want to use all that God has ultimately trusted in me, all the blessings on me, and for my good, and for my self-satisfaction, and for my selfishness. I don't want to follow God. And that's how we now are born. And the bottom line is, and the scary part of this, is because of that sin, we are too judged just as Adam and Eve were, just as Cain was, and just as every person who was born from Adam is. We are born sinners, we willfully sin, and the judgment of wrath of God is heaping up and storing up against us. Why? Because God is a good God, and he must judge sin. If it is wrong, he must correct it, he must discipline it. And this is bad news, because every one of us is under the curse of sin. But there is some hope. Number three, there's Jesus' solution. At the very end of chapter three, we see a hint of hope. In Genesis 3, 7, remember when Adam and Eve, remember their first response, when they sinned and they felt shame and they felt guilt, remember what happened to them. Do you remember? They, at that point, felt a desire to cover up so they sewed some fig leaves and they covered up their sin. They knew it needed to be covered up. They understood that from within their heart. But what happens is at the end of Genesis 3, in verse 21, God comes, he strips them of those old garments, and he gives them a new garment of animal skins, and he clothes them with animal skins. And what does that mean? Well, it gives us a picture of their need, Adam and Eve understood their need once God acted this way towards them. What did they need? It demonstrated their need for grace. They came to the realization after working of all those fig leaves and putting them together and covering themselves up that it was not sufficient, that it could not hide and wash away their shame and their guilt. 
They could not forgive their sins. It wasn't enough for them to be able to, by their own works, to be able to have a right relationship with God once again. Do you get that? They couldn't do it. So if this relationship was going to happen, if forgiveness was going to happen, if the taking away of shame and guilt was going to happen along with this sin, then it could not be through their own self-effort. It would have to be not through their work, but through a righteous, faithful gracious act of God, not giving them what they deserve, but giving them what they do not deserve. Now, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't continuously try. There they are, trying to cover their sin with their own fig leaves again. We call them good works. Later on, God will give them the law, and he'll begin by giving them the Ten Commandments. And they'll sit there, and they'll say, okay, God, I'm going to work my way up to you. I'm going to become righteousness, righteous within myself. I'm going to do everything that you can. And all the way through the Old Testament, what we see is that doesn't end well. Because no matter how hard they want to be righteous, they cannot be righteous because of the sin that dwells within them. And they set out okay. God extends his grace. They set out okay. They fail They repent, God forgives. Okay, God, we're going to do better this time. We're going to do better this time. They sin, they fail. God disciplines, they repent. God extends his grace, he restores them again. And on and on and on again, they can't do it. They needed grace. Secondly, it demonstrated their need for a substitute. God killed the animal so that Adam and Eve could live. In order for their sin to be covered up and their shame to be covered up, the animals had to die in order for that to happen. So in order for Adam and Eve to live, the animals had to die. Do you see that? It's what we call in the word of God, it's what we unpacked as substitutionary atonement. That God's wrath and God's justice is being met not on the guilty party, but on the substitute. Its life was being taken so that the guilty party can go free. Do you see that? It's an amazing picture. And we see this all the way through the word of God. I don't have time to unpack it all, but let me just give you a couple examples. Very soon, there will be a man by the name of Abraham that God will sovereignly call, that, 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 that God will use to bless all the world. And here's the cool part is he calls him and he gives him a son. And his son is Isaac. And with his only son, he tells him, I want you to sacrifice him. So Abraham takes him and he goes up on a mountain and he takes a flint knife and he binds his son. And he picks up this flint knife and he raises it above his head. And now stop and think, this makes no sense to him. This makes no sense of who God is. He knows that murder is wrong. He he knows all these things, but he knows that this is what God is speaking. And so he can do one of two things. He can either submit to God or he can do what is right in his own eyes. And he submits to God by faith. He says, God, I don't understand it, but you said it, I'll, I'll do it. And he raises it up and right before he thrusts it into the heart of his only son, God says, stop. Stop. And as he looks up, there in the thicket is a ram that has been caught in the thicket. And there, instead of sacrificing his only son, he sacrificed the ram. The ram dies in order to pay the price so that his son might live. Later on, we see this, that God's people are caught in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And God remembers them and and hears their cries. And so he raises up a man by the name of Moses. And he sends Moses to them. 
And he sends them out, and, and, and he tells Pharaoh to let his people go. He doesn't, he doesn't listen, so he sends plague after plague after plague, and still Pharaoh refuses to let his people go. He hardens his heart towards God until finally the last plague. God sends a death angel, and this death angel is going to go from house to house. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if they're Israelites or whether they're Egyptians. All will rightfully die, all, all guilty. He's going to send the death angel, and the firstborn of all of them will die. But God says, but I've made a way. If you'll slaughter a lamb, and you'll take its blood, and you will put it over the doorposts, then when that death angel comes by, judgment will pass over, and you'll be saved. The animal will die so that you can live. And so when the people leave there, then every year God commands them that they would recognize and celebrate the Passover supper and that this is what they would do. They would constantly remind themselves of the substitution that God had made. Now later on, through Moses, God will give them this whole series of sacrificial laws. And every single year, a high priest will go into the Holy of Holies. He will go into the temple and he will take a lamb and he will slaughter it. And he will sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of God before God. So that the wrath of God would be appeased yet for one more year. Until they sacrificed it once again. And we find this going all the way to the end of the Old Testament, all the way to the book of Malachi. And this is what the people know. By the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, we realize a few things. We know that man is sinful. We know that he can't help but to sin. He knows that if he's going to ever have a right relationship with God, that it's going to be through God's grace. And it's going to be through a substitute for somebody to die in their place or something to die in their place. But we, when we get to the New Testament, we see that there is a clear problem. Because there in the book of Hebrews, in, in the book of, uh, excuse me, in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, it tells the obvious. It tells us, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Because an animal cannot be a substitute for a human being. Why? Go back to Genesis. Only man was created in the image of God. You see that? Only man was created in the image of God. No matter what Peter says, a dog is not worth a man. He was created in the image of God. So who would they need to substitute a man? But then we're in a whole lot of mess, right? But God does tell us that there is some hope. When we look at Genesis 3.15, we see a glimpse of how this is all going to work out. There it says, I will put enmity. This is God establishing the curse and he's speaking to the devil. And he says, I will put enmity between you, the devil, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you or he, or he shall bruise your head and you shall oh, excuse me he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel this is what he's telling the devil he's saying there is one coming who is going to be an appropriate sacrifice it is not going to be an animal it is going to be he it is going to be a man he is going to be an offspring of the woman you are going to hurt him you're going to harm him but he's going to crush you who is this guy going to be? Well, he gives us 400 years to wait between the Old Testament. We, still, we, don't, we know our condition. We don't know the hope. We're waiting for somebody to come. We get to Genesis. And there's a prophet by the name of John the Baptist who declares, he's telling people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And there he arrives and he looks at this man and he says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Who is he? The Bible describes him 
His name is Jesus. And he is going to die in the place of men. You sit there and say, how is he going to do it? How can a sinful man die for another sinful man? See, that's the key. Do you remember in the beginning we said that we're all under the curse because we all came from the line of Adam? If he came from the line of Adam, he too would be accursed with sin. And if he died on the cross, he would only die for his sin. He could die for nobody else. He would die as a consequence of his own sin. But here is where the glorious story of Christmas comes in. God takes a virgin woman untouched by man and through the power of the Holy Spirit places the Son of God within her womb. So that he is fully God and he is fully man, but he is not marred by sin. He is born and he is tempted in every way, but yet he sins not. He is the perfect picture of the garden of full submission to the Father. I did not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I have greater food, food that you do not know, food to do the will of him who sent me. Me And how does it end? He, day, he dies on a cross. He's nailed on the cross. For those hours, the wrath of God is pouring out on sin. Why? He had no sin. Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. For all those whom he would save. Those sins went on him and he died. And on the third day, God rose him from the, raised him up from the dead. Why? To let us know it worked. It's done. The sins are forgiven. And then from there, an interesting thing ends up happening. So now, God who used to dwell with man, walk with man, now when Jesus leaves, he sends a comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God comes and dwells now in mankind. And he walks with him. And he does an amazing thing. That old nature he puts to death. He puts a new nature inside of them. Now they are able to follow and obey and to submit God. And so they begin to work it out. And day after day after day for all those who were saved and born again. They become more like Jesus. And they learn to submit more and more like Jesus. And, and then that, how that happens is the word of God, the gospel goes out to all the world and it's going out to the uttermost parts of the world. That's the command that Jesus gives us. And so how does all that culminate? In Romans, or excuse me, in Revelation chapter 7 and 11. There at one time, finally when the gospel gets throughout the whole world, remember God's purposes, fill the earth with worshipers so the whole world is declaring my glory. Well, there's the picture. There will be people from every tribe, nation, and people group who will be worshiping God, submitting to God, using what God has entrusted to them to demonstrate his infinite worth and value. And then when he comes, the struggle will stop. He'll transform us, and we will become like him. And then he will create a new heaven and a new earth. It's a new garden. And there we are, back in God's ultimate divine purpose again. God being the benevolent giver and us serving and trusting fully to our God. How do you get in on that? How do I get in on that plan? Our response. Our response is we repent and we believe. We come and recognize that everything that I just said was true. We recognize that we have rebelled against him. We recognize that he did create us for a different purpose. 
we recognize that we did play God for ourselves. We did live for ourselves. We know that we are worthy of sin and death, that that would be the right thing for God to be able to do. But we know if there's any hope of any kind of right relationship, it's not going to be me by doing better. It's going to be God acting on my behalf. And when I look 2,000 years ago at Jesus dying on the cross, that was God working on my behalf. That was the substitute that I needed to be able to pay for my sin. And the Bible says, if you will repent, that means turn from your own way. Turn from you being your God and come and submit yourself fully and completely to God's reign. And entrust with all of your heart, mind, soul to the completed work of Jesus Christ, his death and his burial, resurrection on the cross. God says, I will save you. That's how it works. I wanted to share this with you this morning in closing. I wanted to share this with you for two reasons. Several reasons, actually. One is I wanted you to get a fuller understanding of the gospel, God's redemptive plan for mankind. It's not just in Genesis. It's not just in the first four chapters of Romans. It is from Genesis to Revelation. And what I'm telling you is the Bible answers life's greatest questions. And the people that you and I begin to share the gospel with, sometimes we only have time to be able to give them those four truths. But I can't tell you how many times I have sat down with people at our dinner table and in the office and in their homes and gone through what I just went through with you. Not that you have to mimic it, not that you have to memorize it, just that you would understand it so that when you're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have a fuller understanding of what it is that God is seeking to do. The second reason that I did it is because I pray with all my heart that for some of you, all of a sudden, the gospel for the first time became alive. And then in the good news of Jesus Christ, you would repent and believe. Jesus, we come to you today. We love you. We praise you. We adore you. God, I am not worthy to speak the words that I have spoken today. But by your grace, you've commanded me to do so. God, I pray this morning that this morning will not be like every other morning. But instead, some will come to faith in Christ. And others will be overwhelmed by the goodness and the glory of Christ. Today will be a morning of repentance. But today will also be a day of second uh, beginnings. And God, that we will take the gospel. We will be infatuated with it, overwhelmed by it. And we will learn to share it. We love you, God. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?